If you guys have your Bibles, you want to be finding your way to the book of Titus. So not a place we typically will be uh, on a Sunday gathering, but if you want to be finding your way there. Titus chapter 1. Titus 1, we're going to pick up in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, this is Paul talking to Titus, a young man that he has ordained into ministry. I want you guys to notice there in verse 5, to appoint elders. Elder is uh, plural there. So as we look through the New Testament, we see that the word bishop, overseer, elder, pastor are all synonymous, meaning of the same office. And this is the office to which these men have inspired to. Uh, Over the course of the past year, I've been able to see both Bailey and Tyler, the call of ministry inwardly, that they have a desire to be elders, uh, is to be pastors, but that the Lord has also called them to be elders as well. Uh, Titus is where we get some of these biblical qualifications of what it means to be an elder. We will also see some in Timothy. So uh, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to go over these qualifications of what I believe I see in these men. And for us as covenant partners, as we held them up in front of our body over the uh, the course of the past three weeks, what they saw in them as well. Uh, And then we will lay hands and ordain these men and they will preach for us. So as we continue in uh, Titus here, we get to see that there's going to be three really things that Titus is saying here, that there be uh, characteristics that these men must not have these characteristics that these men must have, and then more importantly, what they must cling to. So the first thing we get to see uh, is what they must not have. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. So we'll stop there. These are qualifications that we see that are not present in both of these men, that we have taken the course of observation as I've sat with these men over the course of, goodness man, for close to a year now, every Tuesday morning as we're sitting through uh, and we're going through God's words together as they are living their lives, as they're leading their missional communities, as they're out in the community in the workforce. uh, These are qualifications that we see that you guys uh, do not have, uh, which is a good thing here. Um, But what we also know is in all of these, we're going to see this common theme line message. It's not about how good these men are. It's not about what they uh, lack in sin or what they have in righteousness, but it's about dependence on Christ. Because you see, as an elder, as an overseer of a flock, you guys will never hold these perfectly, as we talked about. But you will be full-heartedly dependent on Christ to keep you from those sins and to keep you in his righteousness. So that's why we continue in verse 8 that says what you must be, but you must be hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
These are what we're charging you today to be as fellow elders alongside of me here at the branch. Now, I know for many of us, we may not have grown up in an elder-led church, so some of that verbiage may seem a little odd to us, but we see it directly here from Scripture that these men are to lead alongside of me, that they are to be under shepherds of this flock as Christ is the uh, chief shepherd of this flock. So what we're doing today for these men are installing them into the office of an elder. And that this is not something that we get to see other places in Scripture, like First Timothy, where he is encouraged by Paul not to lay hands or to make someone an elder too quickly. But we've taken time, and these men have studied, they've been uh, quizzed, they have been uh, everything that we possibly can think of through sound doctrine and teaching, uh, and proving that they are men of Christ, first and foremost, fiercely loyal to shepherding a flock of people. And that's why we get to see in this final qualification here in Titus what they must hold to. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it that you men must hold to sound doctrine. That the only thing that you guys are charged with in the leading of this flock above anything else is holding true to the shepherd's words that he gave you to lead this flock. So as your pastor and soon to be as your fellow elder, I charge you guys to stay firm, to stay resolute and you're holding to teaching scripture and scripture alone as you lead this flock alongside. That's what scripture teaches us. That's what the elders are to do. So for all of us that sit under these men, their teaching and their preaching and their eldership, this is what we hold them to as well. But at, at this time, I just wanted to take uh, a moment for you guys individually uh, before we have you guys take your vows as elders um, just to share from my heart what I've seen in you guys over the course of this past year. And Tyler's already about to cry. I see it. Um, so I'll start with you first, so that way we get the tears. Yeah. Um, Tyler, you're, from day one, your, your love for my bride and I have made Milledgeville home. Um, leaving uh, Dahlonega and leaving a church plant with a family that we were with for you know, close to four years and coming here, um, how you love and intentionally ask questions from the get-go. I remember riding around in the car after a fam one night um, and telling you, you asked me what my biggest fear coming down was, and I said, community for my bride. And you said something then that I knew that you were wise beyond your years. You said, of course, she's your first ministry. And in that moment, I knew that uh, coming down that I could trust you um, with my bride. There's a, a pastor that I love, John Owen Achequa, that says how you know you have an elder uh, that is qualified, that is biblically someone you want to elder alongside is if you would trust them with your family. And I trust you with my bride more than anyone. Uh, and I know that your love that you have for me, I see it extend to this flock every single day. And because of that, I'm honored to shepherd alongside of you. And Bailey, Speaking of shepherding, you are one of the most fierce shepherds that I've ever uh, had the privilege of getting to know. 
both in what we just read in the exhortation, the encouragement, but also in the rebuke when needed. Um, and I appreciate that you don't um, mince words and that you hold us true to sound doctrine. Uh, from day one, I've gotten to know you as a leader, and I'm honored to be able to step up next to you and to be able to lead this flock alongside you. Um, but for both of you men, the submission that you've so shown me over the course of this past year, I'm honored to be able to then equally submit to both of you guys as well. So uh, before we officially come up, I will have Brian and Gabe come up for our ordination as we lay on hands. But um, we want them to be able to take their elder vows. This is something we'll do at the Branch Church Milledgeville uh, every time we install an, uh, an officer of the church as an elder. So... Um, with that, um, I'm going to read out some of these vows, and then uh, for uh, your part, if you'll just say, I do. So, Tyler, I'll start with you first, so if you, mind, if you don't mind standing, and I'll read these vows to you, and if you affirm these, if you would say that you do. Do you reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith and covenant of this church that contains truth taught in the Holy Scriptures? Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the statements in the statement of faith and covenant, you will on your own initiative make known to the other elders the change which has taken place in your views since your assumption of this vow. Do you sub subscribe to the government and discipline of the branch church? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? <laughs> Have you been induced, as far as you know, your own heart to accept the office of elder from the love of God and sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel in the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, whether personal or relative, private or public, and will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation? And are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and to devote yourselves to prayer, the ministry of the word and the shepherding of God's flock? relying upon the grace of God in such a way that the branch church and the entire church of Jesus will be blessed. You may take a seat. Thank you. Bailey, if you would stand as well. Bailey, do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith and covenant of the church that contains the truth taught in the Holy Scripture? 
Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the statements in the statement of faith and covenant, you will on your own initiative make known to the other elders the change which has taken place in your views since your assumption of this vow? Do you subscribe to the government and discipline of the branch church? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? Have you been induced, as far as you know, your own heart to accept the office of elder from the love of God and sincere desire to promote his glory and the gospel of his son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise on your account? Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all of your duties as elder, whether personal or relative, private or public? And will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation? Are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that the branch church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed. Tyler, if you'll stand here with me as well. Uh, Covenant partners of the branch church, if you guys would stand for just a moment. We get to see that this is not just a covenant that these guys are making uh, alongside of me and each other. This is a covenant we're entering into together as well. So there's a charge to you guys as covenant partners as well. Uh, And if you guys agree to these two, uh, then if you guys would say, I do. So first, do you, the covenant partners of the branch church, acknowledge and publicly receive these men as elders, as gifts of Christ to this church? And will you love them and pray for them in their ministry and work together with them humbly and cheerfully that by the grace of God you may accomplish the mission of the church, giving them all due honor and support in their leadership to which the Lord has called them to, to the glory and honor of God. Awesome. You guys all may take a seat. Brian and Gabe, if you guys would uh, come up here. Um, if you guys would like to take a seat right here, Bailey and Tyler. So what we're about to do um, comes from Scripture. The laying on of hands, as we mentioned, comes from 1 Timothy 3, of how not to be hasty in laying on of hands, that uh, the laying on of hands is symbolically showing that we three, as uh, ministers of the gospel, affirm these men and say that uh, they have been tested that they have uh, endured, that their character, while will never be perfect, but will be pace setters for this flock. Uh, we're partaking, both Brian and Gabe, in their ministry. We are saying that we are affirming of them and we are sending them out. So as we lay on hands, what we are doing is symbolically showing what the first century church did for their elders as well, as we commissioned them into ministry. So, Gabe, if you don't mind praying for Tyler, and then Brian, if you don't mind praying for Bailey, and then I will pray for the three of them, and then they will preach. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's incredible to see your hand in in leading up to this day. Uh, Father, for knowing Tyler for many, many years, and 
the awkward middle school ages and uh, all that you've grown him into. Uh, Father, it's evident that you've called him and set his life apart for something massive. Um, so God, we're, we're humbled to see that you would use ordinary men like us for your kingdom and for your glory. And uh, we're just here to affirm that Tyler has a calling from you uh, to herald the good news, to preach the gospel wherever he goes. Um, we're grateful for the um, character that you've given him, the compassion, the love, and the mercy that Kyle's already uh, spoke over him. Uh, Father, how, how he cares deeply and loves deeply for your people. And so, Father, we're grateful to see uh, him submitting his life, the rest of who he is forever, to you and to your kingdom and to your church. Um, and, and, Father, we're grateful. We, this draws us to worship, uh, to praise you that, that, again, you can use ordinary men for your kingdom and your glory. Uh, so thank you for Tyler. Um, God, we know that this entire congregation and, and even more are so grateful for him and his love for uh, the community around him. And, uh, Father, how he easily speaks gospel truths into people's lives everywhere he goes. Um, so we're just humbled to be a part of this uh, service and to see all that you're going to do, Father, because all you've already done uh, in and through him. So we thank you for his family and, and how they've raised him to be a God-fearing man. Uh, and we're excited to see the future of what will to come. Father, we, uh, we thank you for, for Bailey. Thank you for, first of all and foremost, saving him, Father. A call to salvation that is for your glory alone. And Father, in this call to be an elder, a pastor, a shepherd of the flock that you've given to this local church, Father, it's a call above all for your glory, not his own. So, Father, I pray that uh, as, as you lead Bailey down this path, Father, that you keep the burden on him to teach and preach your word as you have written it, as you desire to share the truth to all, Father. I pray that you guide him by your grace, that you lead him, Father, as he rules, as he's being ruled by you, Jesus, that he is being account held accountable by this flock, Father, that he lead and shepherd this flock by your grace alone and not his power. Father, I pray that as he does, that he not neglect his first, his first role to shepherd his wife. Father, that he lead her in all grace, and together they lead together by your glory, for your glory. So, Father, it's a heavy burden, Father, but it is a burden so, so gracious given by you, Father. And I just pray that, that Bailey hold fast to you, that he be led by you alone, and that he find all that he needs in you, Lord Jesus, as you lead him, Father. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name. So, Father, for both of these men, I'm humbled to see how you execute your will for your glory, that biblical eldership, this model of leading your bride is subscribed in your word and get to see how you've provided for your flock here. God, I'm, I'm humbled to know these men inwards and out, to know their, their joys and their sorrows, to be able to rejoice with them as they rejoice and weep with them as they weep. God, as they enter into this office, I pray that each one would know your love and abound in your grace, all the more so that your glory may be revealed here in Milledgeville. That as they labor alongside this flock for the sake of your glory, that they would be truly servant leaders. 
that they would see that they are the least of these. So that way the flock may be healthy, protected, built up into the image of you, Jesus. God, so I pray for your grace and continue grace in their life that they would rest only in you, that they would be zealous for holiness. God, that as we lead your flock, that is what you ask of us to be men after your own heart, knowing full well that we can only do that by your grace. Would they be exemplary men, bold men? Would they be courageous and speak truth? Would they serve well? Would they love well? Would the well-being of this flock consume their thoughts? I'm honored to be able to be uh, both their pastor and to pastor alongside of them. So Father, thank you for this biblical depiction of how you provide for your bride of Christ, us. So God, we ask for your grace over their ministry, that this is a turning point in their life, that there is no going back that they have been commissioned and installed into this office, into this calling that you have placed on their lives. When times are difficult, when times are tough and they doubt and those seasons come where it feels like death, would they realize that it is and that they are dying to themselves to live for your glory? Would they lead well in that? So Father, we love you, but thank you for first loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Tyler, let's do it, Pastor. Sweet. <laughs> um, so if you guys want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, that's where me and Bailey will be speaking out of today. A um, little bit unorthodox, but I'm going to read the first half and then walk through it, and then he's going to continue right after me to finish it. So I'll be reading out of verses 13 through 19, and then he'll finish verses 20 through 25, and that's kind of how we'll get to, to share and celebrate this together. Um, but as you guys are turning there, just to give a little background on um, Peter and just this book and where we're d- diving into, um, first it's that this is written by Peter, so it wasn't written to Peter, it was written by Peter, um, and he wrote this while he was in Babylon. We know that according to his language that most people believe he was writing to the Gentiles, not the Jews, but that we know that all of these commandments are things that we are to take with us now. Um, So as we dive in here, we're just coming off of Peter describing with such beauty and wonderment the gospel and the inexpressible and incomprehensible joy that comes with Christ in his death and what his resurrection provides. Um, So as you turn there, I'll start to read. So it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the first question I have for you guys as we dive in here off of those first verses is what do you have your hope fully in? What do you have your hope fully in? Is it fully in the coming of the Lord or is it on yourself? Is it in your careers? Is it in future careers? Is it in what life is providing you right now? Is it family? Is it your wife or husband or the hope of a future wife or husband? Is it those things that when you get up in the morning that give you hope, that give you, you know, a reason to live, or is it fully on Christ? That in and of those things, none of them are bad, bad by any means, but all of those things compare and come nothing to Christ. And as believers in here, we get to celebrate and we get to rest in knowing that Christ will one day come again. And with that, we'll bring perfection that will be given to us. The things that are already so great in this world, the things that we get to take part in, that we get to see God in each and every day, those things will be so much greater. That those things will be perfect. That no longer will there be a struggle of idolatry of those things we love because those things will be in union with Christ. That one day we will be provided full revelation and all things will be made new and that should bring us joy each and every day. That is verse 14 says, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead surrender those passions and overcome them. That we are called to place our newfound ignorance fully in the hope of the Lord so that we can walk with him in holiness. That like verse 15 says, even moving on, says, but he who is called to be holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And what that verse is referencing there is Leviticus 19.2, which says, Speak to all of the congregations of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God and am holy. And what a beautiful illustration we get to see that even in the Old Testament, what God was doing was setting aside a people and setting aside his people of Israel above everyone else to be holy because of himself. And we get this beautiful picture of getting to see what Israel was like and what the Lord did and what God had special for him to see what now we get to partake in as believers. That moving forward to even ask the question, what does it look like for us to be holy? And that question of of sitting here and, and understanding even the weight of just what ordination means and what it means to stand here and now be able to represent you as a pastor and as an elder, there's weight that comes with that. But how much more weight should we all have knowing that we are now called to be holy because of the Lord? That what it means and what it looks like for us to be holy is to focus solely on the will of God. Focus nothing of ourselves. Put no hope in in our actions or what we can do, but fully on what the Lord can do that how we discern this and how we discern what this will is, is fully and solely by his word. The same word that we stand here and use for everything, that nothing of our own thoughts of our own minds, no Jiminy Cricket or, you know, conscious that we should have guiding us should be the end all be all for what we do. It is fully, fully devoted to scripture and his word. That we can sit all day trying to look at this word and seeing where it can fit with what we feel and what we believe and what we think we should do when in turn we should be doing the opposite if we want to truly be holy. 
if we want to truly focus on the Lord and honor him each and every day with our very breath, with everything that we do, with every instance from the second we wake up to the second we go to bed, with every prayer we have, with every step we take. If we want to walk in holiness like we're called to do, it is to focus solely on his word and be dedicated to it. That in, math, or that in Deuteronomy 8.3, we read that, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And these are the same words that the Lord spoke in Matthew 4, 4 when he was being tempted. That in his own temptation, the very words that he spoke is that we do not live just by bread alone, but we live by every word that has come out of the mouth of the Lord. That's what, it, that's what this call of holiness looks like. That like we've just read in Philippians uh, last semester, we read from Philippians 3.17 that we are to imitate Paul. That it says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That just as we are to imitate Paul and we are to imitate those that are in front of us and those around us, that I'm to imitate Kyle as he is imitating the Lord and Bailey as he is imitating the Lord, how much more should we just be imitating the Lord himself in his very word? How much more should we be focusing on the words that he gives and dedicating our lives to it and to the prayers towards him so that we can sit in that holiness instead of our own selfishness? That just like this illustration of a man who is obsessed with working out, a man that wants to get healthier and starts to learn what that lifestyle looks like and dedicates his life to working out each and every day and learning the routine that that takes and learning what muscle groups he needs to work these days versus those days. And as he starts to eat healthier foods and healthier foods, uh, he learns that these sugars and other things are not good for him. And as he begins to work out and as he continues in that lifestyle, the sugars and the things that he used to eat before he got healthier, that those things mean less to him now that he has less of a desire for those things because this new lifestyle for him is all that much more better. That just like this, this man who's obsessed with working out and this man that wants to grow and wants to get more and more built, how much more should our lives in holiness look like that? Should the sugars that one day felt so sweet and the temptations that seemed so good to us, how much more should we lay past those to want to honor the Lord? The difference between these two illustrations is that for us, what that looks like is resting. It is not killing ourselves each and every day. It is not having to work out each and every muscle group and fighting each and every day to get that way. It is resting solely in Christ who has already accomplished that. It is resting fully in him and getting to thank him every day for what he has done and dedicating our lives to prayer in him to praying continuously and living each and every day fully for him. That Charles Spurgeon says, I have now concentrated all of my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I might die to self and live holy in him. That that holiness is living holy in him. That it is, it is sacrificing and giving up everything else so that we can ask the Lord each and every day and beg him just to die to ourselves again and again each and every day so that we can live and take and rest fully in him, which is so much better and so much greater than anything else we could have. Then moving on to verses 17 through 19, it says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That what we see here is we are to conduct ourselves with fear, something so often we overlook, but we are to conduct ourselves with fear because the reality of it is is that we don't deserve any of this. You don't deserve any of this. The best we could offer Christ, the very best we could offer him when he was born into this world was gold and frankincense and myrrh. And he deserved that and so much more. And yet what he gave us was his perfect blood. He was the lamb without a single blemish or a single spot. He was perfect and he deserved to be hoisted up as a king. He deserved to be this perfect king showered with every gift this earth contains. But instead what we did was we put him on the cross, we humiliate him, we stoned him, and we crucified him. And for who? The very people who denied his name. The very Peter who we're reading from here who denied his name. And we put our hope every single day. We do this very thing every single day when we put anything else of this world before him. When we are not resting our hope in the Lord when we are not sitting and focusing fully on him, we put on every fading and perishable gold and silver and everything that will one day go. That the very people who still fall back to our passions of ignorance instead of striving for the holiness that the Lord has given us. That we are the very people who instead of fearing God and thanking him relentlessly, relentlessly for saving us from, our, from his own wrath, Instead, we sit in prayer and we ask him for more. We ask him for less suffering. We ask him for more stuff. We ask for the very opposite of the truly thing we need, which is nothing apart from Christ. That we need to sit sometimes and focus on the fear that we should have in the Lord and understanding how much we don't deserve this so that we can sit all the more in the joy we can have in him that we get to sit and we get to revel and we get to thank him each and every day and rest in his word each and every day because we don't deserve it. That I don't deserve to stand up here. I don't deserve this at all because I fail constantly, that I struggled in this process of ordination and the weight of what it took and what it means to even see these 15 qualifications when all the more we get to focus and we get to thank the Lord for what he has saved us from anyway. Because with myself, I would not be here. I couldn't be here. But because of Christ, I can. And because of Christ, even more as special as this day is, how much more special it is that we are now saved, that I can now profess each and every day what the Lord has done for me and how he has radically changed me. That how much more joy is in that than a moment like this? How much more joy is it knowing that Christ will come again and we get to sit in his perfection? How much more of a joy is it that we can have those things and we can understand that all the more by understanding the fear we should have and we should walk in the Lord. And so I'm going to pray us out as Bailey's going to come up here and, and drive, it, drive it home. But <laughs> Dear Lord, just thank you again so much for today. Thank you for your word and just the passion that it brings, Lord. Thank you for the holiness that lives inside us and what you provide and what you bring that I could never, Lord. Thank you for the convictions and everything, Lord. We owe everything to you and nothing to ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Good job, Ty.
<laughs> we were uh, messing with each other in the back and kept telling him it would be a shame to lay a dud on a day like today. <laughs> and he certainly didn't. So hopefully I can follow suit. But we're going to continue here in verse 20 through 25 uh, on the matter of deserving that Tyler began to touch on in Christ's perfection. We can see here in verse 20 that he being Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, continuing on, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it's such an honor today to continue off the foundation that Tyler just laid is that this preeminence of Christ was not only he foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was preordained. That Christ was never a backup plan for our sin. Now, I think that's something we can skip over if we just read it and say he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And if we we're raised in the church at all, we can just go ahead and assume, yes, by all means, he was with God and that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. But the thing that's so unique here is that not only was he foreknown, but was made manifest in last times. Friends, that's because Christ was never a backup plan to cover our sin. He always was always has been and always will be our great mediator between us and God. And a lot of times we need to go ahead and lay the foundation that our Christian life isn't a series of if-then sequences. When I say that, I mean that our sin didn't warrant Christ, but that Christ always was because God knew there would be our sin. And in our lives today, in our same way, our Christian living is not an if-then. The things we like to say or think, that if we do our quiet time, then God will fill us up. If we pray the right prayer, then God will hear us. If we strive hard enough, then God will sanctify us. Well, friends, the reality is that our lives revolve around fi final statements that are written in the rock of ages. That there's nothing we have done that warrants an action of God, but that he's already given us everything through Christ. It's something we hit on so much here is because so many times our lives can shift from a stance of being obedient to Christ for striving for more than Christ. An idea of perfection that's outside of what was already sent to us. As Tyler just hit on, we're not deserving of the Savior that has come. But perfection has already come. And what a great impact that should have on our prayer lives, on our daily lives, on our ministries, and the way we go to the workplace is that every single day, I said this last week, and all of our lives in here today, from every age range, we have never lived in a time where we're waiting on our Savior. We live on the launching pad that he's already come, was killed, and is risen, and now we are sent out. So that our lives are not if-then statements, but 
totally hinge on the reality that was the perfect Savior that came, that claimed us, and has now sent us out. And it's so that through him, as verse 21 says, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We can see this similar thought in John 17, 17. That the truth is the one that sanctifies. As it says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. So as Tyler said, there's nothing we could do in it of ourselves to strive for and earn this perfection. Remember, it has already come. It was already hung on the cross. It has already been resurrected. But then what's our proper response in Christian living? It's simply to reciprocate what Christ did, not in perfection, but in reliance on his perfection. That Christ came, gave everything, so that we, in response, could give everything. That's the beauty of what it is, that Christ is self-sufficient. A lot of times we can hear that, no, there's nothing we could offer. On our best day, it's but filthy rags, and that is a majestic and glorious thing, that we don't have anything to offer because we can't, and we can't because God is already all-sufficient and self-perfecting. That is the one that sanctifies us, but again, we're still prompted with what is our proper response. And too many times we can hear those trigger words of sanctification. We know our finish line of Christians is that we'll be brought home to perfection. That on our final day we'll be complete, as Tyler said, in full revelation of our creator and of our savior. But it's not like it's something that we put on pause while we're here. The everlasting life that John 3.16 talks about doesn't begin when we die. It begins when we're truly made alive through Christ and his imperishable seed. That's why the Bible is so specific in its language that you who were once dead are now risen to life through the sacrifice of Christ, resurrected in life with him. That friends, if we can say we know Christ here this morning, then that is the first time we truly come to life. That just because we were breathing breath before, that just because we were brought into this world from our mother's womb, that does not mean we were alive because we did not know life. That the Christian life is one riddled with truly knowing the things of this life. From true love to true despair. From true joy to the deepest depression. And its fullness is wrapped up in that of Christ. So that as we're made truly alive, we strive after perfection. Because guys, sanctification again isn't this kind of pulling back the veil when we get to eternity. That veil has already been pulled back. Scripture says it so beautifully that when we come to see Christ in this life, the scales fall from our eyes then. That when we come to know God as he knows us here while we live and breathe today, our eternal life begins then. Our eternal purpose begins then. And that's the thing about the Christian life is that it's so supernatural in the way that we can't conjure up anything outside ourselves, but everything was already sent. We were being sustained by that today. Now the Christian life while lived here in our mortal lives is being lived for a higher calling and an eternal purpose. Guys, as Christians, the very thing we get to strive and pine after 
is that standard of perfection in Christ. And don't hear me say you must be perfect to be a Christian. As Tyler just said, if anything we get to celebrate today, it's not that we have earned the title. It's not that we have come to a certain level of ascension. It's that we have simply over the course of the last year seen and reminded each other time and time again of our shortcomings. That we've had a faithful leader and pastor who has reminded us that those are not left by themselves but point us back to the perfection that is Christ. But so much, and I don't know why or where or when this started, but especially in the southeast, is this is like shares and stocks of glory that we just hold up in heaven as they wait for us. It says, yes, there's an eternal weight of glory waiting for us, but that eternal purpose in life begins now, here, today, as you know Christ. That you're not just going to your job day in, day out to cash a check. That you're not just going to your place of learning just to get a degree. That for our college students, the most meaningful thing you could do in your four years at Georgia College, GMC, isn't to get a degree, it's to come to know the Lord and partake in his work. That for our families here, as it is such a benefit, as I trust you come to know or at least will know, that this is the village, biblically, that is called to help raise a child up in the ways of the Lord. And while that's a benefit, we're called to press in and help us raise up our younger believers and seeing and exemplifying what it is in a healthy marriage that's so dependent on Christ. Our saints who are wise in their years, as can be marked by gray hairs and maybe more wrinkles than some, have a wealth of knowledge to offer our young ones who think they know it all. That, guys, what I'm saying is that glory that's awaiting us isn't something that causes us to just sit on our hands and coast across the finish line but that we strive after it with all we have day in and day out. It's our heart cry. It's the very passion and purpose that flows through our veins. And so many times we come to see and know why is it that life feels so stagnant? Why is it that my quiet time isn't as rich as it was, had been, or I know could be? Why are my prayers not being answered? What is it that I'm doing that's causing this to not be this way? May we again not fall into if-then statements and recall that perfection in Christ was sent, that that same perfection sustains us, and it's not just for us to say so. As Tyler mentioned an athlete, Scripture would call us runners of the gospel, that we are all almost upon salvation being launched into this race of life, that we carry the torch of the gospel. And that's by the grace of God that he calls us his runners. But guys, would the world know that you're running well? I say that not in just the habits of training, but would, would the world know that we are even runners of the gospel? Or would they just know us as a coworker? Would they know us as a student? And this is a sidebar, but if not, and if it's because of our fear of what they would think if we shared with them this eternal clause, if we're scared that they would know us as the crazy Christian person, friends, that's far better now 
than it is to get to eternity one day and have to explain to our father why it is they never knew us as one of his children because we were scared of the awkwardness that would follow. That it's far better now that we would run well. Before we were dead, we weren't even alive and breathing, but in the spirit of Christ, we are raised up. Why? To run well and run hard after Christ. That our good works and the things that we do following salvation are not the root of our faith, as Tyler beautifully said, but by all means, it's the fruit of our faith. The fact is, as Spurgeon said, we are all ministers of the gospel. So we either act as such or we are viewed as imposters. Guys, for all of us in this room, if we know Christ, it's only because Christ has known us. If we can say we are living, it's because Christ has raised us up in newness of life in him. If we are wondering what our purpose is, we're not looking to Christ. We may feel lost at times. We may lose jobs. We may lose loved ones. We may come to lose one another through the ebbs and flows of life, but the thing about faith is that it's something that is given, not earned. It's a seal on our eternity that we can't rub off, that won't peel off, that won't ever be washed away because Christ's blood has done all the washing necessary. The truth of the matter is that God calls us by name as he claims us as his own. But do we call him father to the same veracity? As he looks down on us, picture this, as he looks down on us as his creation and calls us beloved, a royal priesthood, sons and daughters, can we not afford the time at the start of each day to cry out to him as father, sustainer, supreme Lord? We say that a lot about preaching the gospel to ourselves here. That's what that looks like. In our race of sanctification, the beautiful thing about it is is that it's not left up to our own devices. That we saw in verse 21, that who through him being Christ are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory And it's all because of that that our faith and hope are in God. Nothing about that says that it was about ourselves. Nothing about that said it was about our confession that was coming or our admittance or believing upon a VBS gospel. It was about the eternal sufficiency of Christ. Again, God never raised up himself in human form as a plan Z in response to our sin. It always was that way. He knew what was coming. And if we ever think so little of ourselves or that the standard of perfection isn't something we'll reach here, you would be right. But I would say back to you, it's something that we're given the purpose to strive after every single breath we have. It's the purpose of our lives. It gives us life. It's the very foundation of our lives. And it's not so that Christians can raise themselves up as the most legalistic or proper people. 
Our humility is always rooted in what we don't deserve, but was freely given. And because of that, we strive for perfection. Not for perfection's sake, but because we're sustained by the spirit of the eternal living God. Verse 22 goes on and says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice here that it does not leave us out as far as responsibility goes. That yes, Christ is the sustainer. He is the savior. He is the one that has raised us up, sustains the race, and is our very finish line. But we're not excused. As it reads, having purified your souls by your obedience. Now left there, it could be very easy to take a legalistic view. And when I say legalistic, it means self-authenticating as if we can. That if we can go and take an offer to the world and say, I'm a Christian because I do attend every Sunday, because I do memorize scripture, because I do even do my quiet time. Friends, again, if we go to the world and offer anything other than, I'm a Christian because and solely because of the grace of God, then we're taking a false gospel. If that is the foundation of our faiths, friends, if we are the foundation of our faith, then we will also be the gas that we put in our tank for sanctification. And that is where we see saints burn out and fall away. Because we can't do our calling. If that be the case, if we are our own sustenance, we can't purify our souls, as verse 22 calls. And if we can't do that, then we can't be obedient to truth. And if we can't do that, we cannot love one another with sincere brotherly love. And friends, the context of the love that's being spoken here isn't just words of admonishment. It's not just encouragements. It's all that and more that is wrapped up in reminding one another of the very reason we live. It's such an honor to share this day with this guy and having known him since three-year-old T-ball and to have Collier here and knowing, knowing him since six years old and guys that came up with us and Nard and Garrett, who I know will listen back to this. We didn't grow up in the best example of brotherly love in a congregational standpoint. So just through life circumstances and context, we got to figure that out together. And guys, let me tell you, the call for purified hearts in light of obedience really and truly does enable us to love one another with that pure heart. And it's one of the greatest joys of ministry, but also one of the things I wish we would have caught on to sooner because we really didn't hit our stride until second semester senior year. And it's my greatest encouragement I can offer to you all is that none of that is rooted in works. It is not rooted in whether or not you're here today, whether or not you're here next Sunday. It's rooted in an obedient heart that strives for obedience. 
that if the very reason you come here is rooted in obedient response to the gospel, that calls you here. That if you go and work hard and toil for the Lord, it's rooted in the gospel that has raised you up to do so. That if we would love one another as desperately and passionately and obediently as we could, that it's rooted in a heart that is seeking to purify itself in the fire of the Lord. That's one of my biggest pet peeves that so many worship songs today and so many people would call for the fire of the Lord as if it's a comforting thing. One of the only times in Scripture we see the fire of the Lord was used to destroy and refine. The gospel would have us take it so far that we would sit in the love of the Lord and fear our God, remembering life without him before we came to know him and trembling at what it would be if he removed his hand of grace for but a second. That perhaps our prayer lives would be molded differently in its core being giving thanks for breath, that our time with one another, we would ask that it would be extended beyond its minutes and its depth and love and richness of fellowship. Friends, that we would recognize the Christian life isn't just a set of rules and standards given to us to check off, but it's a set of commandments to be obeyed that give us life, that those obedience that follows is sustained by the Spirit. That we wouldn't treat God's glory as something we're waiting to cash in on when we cross the finish line of eternity, but recognize it's the very thing that is holding us today. 1 John 3.3 would say it this way in our daily life and how we respond. And everyone who thus hopes in him being the Lord, purifies himself as he is pure. Again, another example that Christ being our standard, being our sustainer, is that he is pure, so then what? We purify ourselves. This is something that I I pray every day, and I know we do, and have been in our elder meetings, that for our flock, that we would get a glimpse and a breath of this. I trust that there are many of us who can claim to truly, truly know Christ, who can call him Father, who are running the race as they've been raised up. There's our greatest hope and heart cry that we would be a congregation that runs the race well. that we would recognize Christianity doesn't invite relativism. It doesn't invite for us to come and take part in this proverbial table that we can scoop on our plates, whatever we'd like. And as long as it works for you, it works for you. I'm not one to tell you what works. But sadly, that's something that has seeped in to the foundation of the church today from the world. And that's the context of our loving one another well here as I can take it back to our core four group, is that there have been times where that love has made one another want to hate each other. 
especially with me, where they've had to come to me and remind me, you're not all that. Giving me nicknames to remind me that there was nothing special about myself. And I'm the man I am today because of that genuine love. So as we remember our own salvation rooted in humility of that we are Christians and Christian alone by the grace of God, that we would be emboldened to truly love one another. Again, as I said last week, that if we know one of our brothers and sisters in this context is spending four hours watching Netflix, unplug their TV, grab your Bible, and go study with them. That when we come to one another and need prayer, we wouldn't just say, I'll be praying for you. We would take them by the arm and go pray. That if there's a need, we would reflect the church of Acts and meeting it as one, as everything is commonly shared against one another. Because here's the most beautiful thing, and Matthew Henry had this to say about the love that Christians share with one another, that it's a great joy as we get to love our families and it's natural law, our families by blood. But it's doubly the greatest joy and honor that we should come to love the family we gain by the Spirit. I joke with Kyle and Tyler about Philippians 2-2 so much because we've taught on it so many times that I swore to Kyle, if he ever assigned it to me, I would just ask, trade with me. But I'd be remiss if we didn't mention today that the same heart and the one mind and full accord that our college gathering is rooted on, that the body of Christ is rooted in, is knit together by the Spirit, even more so by the Word of God. So are we left on our own to accomplish this? By no means. We're not left to our own vanity. I'm getting to study that with my bride as we read through Ecclesiastes. And if you even just read the first chapter, you see everything about man left alone to man is vanity. It's described as chasing after wind something that's been done for ages and will be done till ages end, that it's vanity. But what a joy it is that our lives and our hope and our faith aren't rooted in the perishable. As Peter would go on here in verse 24 and 25 to quote the prophet Isaiah, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what? What's our response? We're not left to our own devices, but how then Are we shaped into perfection? Is it by our own accord? No, it's in full accord with one another. How can we come to know God through his word? Is it by personal revelation? No, 
God does the duty of revealing himself to us. There's no need for us to redefine that. And my friends, is it by God meeting our needs as if he already hasn't through his son? No. May we not make God so small as to confine him to being a first responder to our whims. As we looked at beforehand, Christ was never a plan B. His perfection being imputed on us through the cross was never a backup plan. It was God's purpose from the foundation of time that he would take a fallen people and raise them up on his firm foundation. That our call in the Great Commission isn't something that started at some point in church history. It always has been. That the call of a disciple of Christ has always been to go make disciples. But how? And something we overlook every day, yet that is so profound and is sitting in most of our hands right now, is the Bible. It is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 would have this to say. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, what a beautiful illustration that the life of the Christian shouldn't be categorized in something that I've used early on in ministry as such a cheap sectioning off of already but not yet. We've heard it before that, that we're living in already Christ is reigning but we're not yet home type thing. That's completely blown away by the fact that, again, we all live in a day in Christian life where we are not waiting for our Savior to come and reveal himself. He already has. That already but not yet has come and gone with his life, death, and resurrection. And, and friends, we are already where we're at right now because it is where God has put us and he has set the spirit up and made a home in our very bones. And that's why this is such a beautiful picture that if we could imagine both the temporal and eternal, the mortal and the otherwise celestial, that, that the things we're living through right now and the things we're not seeing that are fighting for our obedience are like two planes just stacked right on top of each other. And that's why I love this scripture that it d describes God's word as sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces the division of soul and spirit. The very thing we look for that would make sense of this life and why it can't just work out this way that I talked to Pastor Kyle about this week, that in sanctification it would sure be a whole lot better just to know how, when, and why he was doing what he's doing. But as my dad reminded me last night, what would then be the point of faith? And friends, what a beautiful reminder that that faith is given, not earned. And it is a firm foundation as well as the softest 
place to lay our heads. As we abide in Christ solely to run after him to eternity, for eternity, right here and right now. So as we are all runners and we know Christ, we are running the great race. But friends, may our heart cry and our hope be what it already said it is, rooted in the imperishable seed of Christ. May we want it no other way. As our foundation of the race is set up in Christ, as he is the one that sustains us and gives us the endurance to run, and not only run, but run well in his perfection. And that he would be the very greatest joy that rolls off our lips to the world. That the God of the universe sent his son to suffer everything on our behalf. That we would receive the everything that is Christ through his blood only in response to lay everything at his feet. The very breath that fills our lungs and purpose of our lives as best as I could is summed up in this final point is that we are sent, sustained, and sanctified by the Spirit. And our obedient response is desperate dependence. May we relish in that. May we understand that's the very reason we get to celebrate today, that there is nothing special about Tyler and I, and we could take the 21 years we've known each other to share with you why the other one's not so special, (laughs) aside from the grace of Christ. May we understand that, as Kyle said, in being the pastors of the Branch Millersville, the sole duty of our lives and loving our first ministries well is to set the pace for this body. So it's our prayer that none of us here who can say we know Christ would be content and just running. But brothers, sisters, that we would run well. That we wouldn't be so complacent to wait to just cash in on God's glory when eternity comes, but that we would depend on it every single day. It's the very lifeline of our souls. And that we would take this God-breathed word and view it for what it is, sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts through the difference between mind and heart, and spirit, and pierces them all together. And may we revel in what beauty it is, as we mentioned at the start of this chunk of verses. That's something that's passed over so much, but we must recall here that yes, in the beginning was the word, capital W, and the word was with God, just as Christ was that word who was raised up from the beginning to both sustain us Immediate for us to be that word that shapes and sanctifies our very lives. So congregation, Branch Milledgeville, Dahlonega, and Network, may it be our hope and prayer that we not just run, but run well and run passionately and loving one another in such a way that when we fall, we will pick one another up until the other can run again. 
And then if one chooses that they should not want to run, that we would lovingly drag them in the dirt until our knees become so scuffed, we would join in that same pace and run again. All the while remembering that Christ is our foundation. He is our great sustainer. He's mediating for us right now. And what a joy it is that he is our finish line. Let us run well. Let perfection not just be something that makes us sit on our hands and observe like a bystander. Let us always identify as to what we are, and that is born of the seed of the imperishable Christ. Father, thank you so much that this truth reigns supreme. God, that you reign supreme, that you have given us your word to sustain us, shape us, and raise us up. Thank you for the joy that it is today that through Tyler and I's disobediences over the years, through our shortcomings, you have seen fit to continue to raise up time and time again. God, thank you for saving us Thank you for saving your children in the room today. But God, let us not just be okay with being saved for salvation's sake. Let us understand the call of the gospel to take the gospel. God, let us revel in the fact that that gives us life. What we can think of so many times as the heaviest burden. Let us not think so highly of ourselves to forget that, Lord, you bore the heaviest burden on the cross so that the yoke we take on of yourself would be considered light and easy. That's our greatest joy. That's our very hope, and we praise you that it's imperishable because it's rooted in you. Father, thank you for all these things. Thank you for this body and this congregation and its leaders. We pray that you would sustain us alone everyone in here would call you Father and solely depend on you. Amen.